Dizza Bulletin, in association with WFHB News, presents Lawyers, Schools, and Access, the history of special education in the United States. I'm Abe Shapiro. As part of our continuing exploration regarding the history of special education in the United States, we have covered the critical court cases preceding last January's Supreme Court case regarding special education, Perez v. Sturgis Public School District. Our journey so far has taken us to the earliest special education court case, 1893's Walton v. Cambridge, to 1919's Beatty v. Antigo Board of Education, before reaching last week's summary of Goldman v. Ohio, from 1935, one of the first notable victories for a special education student at that time. However, before we move into the mobilization of parents in the 1950s and the tide beginning to turn in favor of students with disabilities, it is critical that we return to the Beatty case of 1919. Although we've already reviewed the aftermath of Merritt Beatty's life following his exclusion from the Anago public school system, we reached out to Susan Smith Blakely, who not only wrote the source informing us of Merritt's later life, but whose father knew Merritt going all the way back to when the case was brought to trial in 1919. Tonight, we air her story and perspective as a witness to special education history. You can hear our full interview with Susan Smith Blakely at WFHB.org. Just search for Disabilitin. Tonight, we are honored to have Susan Smith Blakely as one of our guests. She is an award winning author of four books, a book series including the Bar Books for Women Lawyers and one of the books that features a rather important contribution to our story of special education. What Millennial Lawyers Want, A Bridge from the Past to the Present. She is the recipient of the 2015 Miss J.D. Sharing Her Passion Award and the Lawyers Monthly Women in Law Award in 2016. And she joins us now from Virginia. Again, welcome to the program, Miss Blakely. Well, thank you, Abe. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm just going to add that I actually have five books. Oh, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> And that the new one is the New no Lawyer Launch, the handbook for young lawyers. We began our interview by asking Smith Blakely about what inspired her to write about special education back in 1979. Well, it came about as a requirement of a seminar course that I was taking when I was a last year student at Georgetown Law School. And I enrolled, in, it was 1978, I enrolled in a seminar titled Legal Rights of the Handicapped. And as I mentioned, it was a, a paper requirement course. Um, I ha didn't have any prior interest in the subject matter, but it intrigued me, especially because I had taught public school for eight years prior to going to law school. Uh, my husband during those days um, was training as a fighter pilot in the Marine Corps, and so we had to have we had a different duty station almost every year. So I taught in five different states in the country, and um, had a lot of interesting experience doing that. And my interest in education was really profound. So. Focusing on the equal right to a public education with a handicap was a logical choice for me at that time uh, for the paper topic that I needed to 
uh, you know, to, to turn out for that seminar course. One night in the law library and in the midst of a research session, Smith Blakely stumbled upon a familiar name. I was researching for this paper course and I came across the case Beatty versus the Board of Education, which was a Wisconsin Supreme Court case um, decided in 1919, where a local Wisconsin school board's actions in, in denying a sixth grade student who suffered from cerebral palsy was upheld on the basis that that handicapped student had a negative impact on the other students in the room because of uh, physical manifestations of his disease. He didn't talk uh, particularly clearly, and uh, he I remember reading in the decision that he also had a little bit of a, a drooling problem. Um, the defendant was the public school system in my hometown of Antigo, Wisconsin. One of the reasons we contacted you as well, too, the closest thing that we had when we went to the law library in Antigo was Miss Blakely's article on this. That's right. And so um, it's a small town in North Wisconsin. <laughs> it's where I grew up. And uh, it was the defendant in this case. And, and then in addition to that, which was a great surprise to me, I thought I recognized the name of the uh, aggrieved parties, the plaintiffs in this case, uh, Merritt Beatty and his family. Smith Blakely fondly described what happened next and expanded further upon her father's friendship with Merritt. So when I left the library and got home, I excitedly called my dad, who is, was a lawyer in my hometown still at the time, and who also coincidentally had served on the defendant school board uh, for almost 20 years and, and shared that board for most of that time. Of course, that was long after the Beatty family sued on behalf of their handicapped son, but it was those coincidence, uh, coincidences were, were pretty uh, strong and, and really enthused me about writing on this topic. So when I asked my dad to confirm whether Merritt Beatty was the man that I knew as Bud Beatty, that certainly was what my dad did. Everybody referred to Merritt Beatty as Bud. And uh, he was a common sight walking the streets of our business community, selling advertising, which was the business that he did, and uh, greeting everybody with a smile. Bud had trouble talking, as I mentioned before, and his gait was very unusual as he shuffled down the street. So you, he, he, he stood out. But he was so determined to function as a businessman, and he did. And that business of his, selling advertising to the local paper and other concerns, um, uh, meant that he had a selling territory which covered a radius of approximately 150 miles from our town, I believe. And he couldn't drive because of his disease. So he often took public transportation, but he also was my dad's passenger on many occasions, and my dad knew him well. 
and uh, he he was about six years older than my dad, but they basically grew up in this small town and 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 knew each other well. And when Dad had to travel to a circuit court within Bud's selling territory, uh, Dad would invite Bud to ride with him, and he would drop Bud off in the business district of that town, and then Dad would proceed to the courthouse to do his work. And then at the end of that, he would pick Bud up at the end, and he would they would ride back home together. Uh, my father was very fond of Bud and enjoyed his company. All through their adult lives particularly, I mean, Dad knew Bud to be very intelligent, and, and he would work hard at having really great conversations with Bud. And he really admired Bud's determination to address and overcome and also contribute to the community. You know, my dad was very happy to tell me that Bud had received this local Chamber of Commerce award for his efforts in improving the downtown of Antigo, Wisconsin, with holiday decorations each year, and he manned the local Christmas tree lot, you know, with, with his typical great enthusiasm. Um, my dad also knew Bud's family, and, um, and, and through that connection, he was able to gain me access to personal diaries and interviews with Bud's family members describing Bud's challenges and how they were dealt with. Bud was uh, fortunate in this regard that he was in a family where there was a doctor um, who helped to devise certain mechanisms for Bud to strengthen his muscles so he could he could walk more aptly. There was a teacher who could uh, teach him because he was not allowed to go to public school anymore. And those things were included in the conversations and diaries that I was able to access. And, and it certainly increased my personal interest in telling uh, Bud Beatty's story. So with that connection, I just got deeper into the law and wrote the seminar paper I'm pleased to say that my professor was very enthused with the paper, <laughs> and uh, the result um, was that he encouraged me and helped me to get it published in the Ohio State Law Journal, as you said, in 1979, and it was published as a lead author, which was very unusual for a student, so that that was very uh, that was very helpful to me. Normally, students in law school write things called case notes for law schools. Those case notes don't appear uh, as prominently in the journal as as a lead article would. So that's what I did, and um, I'm grateful for that help that I got for that professor for sure. Um, that's what you look for 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 the best teachers. Along with emphasizing the importance of including human interest stories in legal analysis, Susan Smith-Blakely summarized the remainder of her 1979 article and gave an overview of the laws which changed how students with disabilities could obtain an education appropriate to their needs. These were passed in the 1970s following a series of court cases 
which the Disabulletin will explore in future installments of our mini-series Lawyers, Schools, and Access, the history of special education in the United States. The law can be very dry. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think that was one of the, the personal interest hook um, in Bud's story and getting the information from his family and also having had the connection that I had with him through through my dad um, is what got that article published in a leading law review because it's a personal interest story. And my particular emphasis in that article was Public Law 94-142, which was enacted in 1975 as a response to a decision of the United States Supreme Court in a case called San Antonio versus Rodriguez, which set back prior decisions of federal courts um, in two cases. One is called Park, P-A-R-C, and the Mills cases. I'm Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn.